0: First, the section that stands before us uh, begins what is called the body of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was a preacher. That comes as no surprise to any of us. He was the greatest of preachers. And as any great preacher, he has an introduction he has introductions in his sermons uh, he has uh, a body of the sermon which we now begin and as we'll see uh, he has a conclusion to his sermon and the, the section which we now begin is the sermon proper it's where he he gets to the what we would call the nitty gritty of his teaching and this is not unusual this is the way that rabbis taught For years, uh, for centuries, you would have an introduction and then you would have the body of the sermon. What is unusual is that Jesus, just before he gets to the body of the sermon, he caveats his sermon. He caveats what he is about to say, as so often preachers do. How many times have you heard me just before I say something that might be misinterpreted, caveating uh, something that I'm about to say? And Jesus is caveating uh, what he is about to say. He knows that what he is about to say is deeply offensive, controversial, surprising. And he wants to make sure that everyone understands where he stands. He is about to challenge the rabbinic interpretation of the law of his day. And since those interpretations, by those who who would be listening to him, those rabbinic interpretations would be considered uh, authoritative in law in in themselves, Uh, he clearly states from the beginning, he affirms from the beginning, the inspiration and the authority of the law. And he demands, as we'll see, his followers to keep the law. Jesus anticipates the accusation that he is rejecting uh, the law because he is only actually rejecting the rabbinic interpretation of the law. He, Jesus anticipates that rejection, that ac- accusation, by saying what we just read. So this is how Jesus begins. He says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy or to some translations, put it abolish, but to fulfill. Some of the statements that we are about to read from Jesus, not only in the rest of the of chapter five, in these six antitheses and antitheses that Jesus is going to present, uh, but even in just this body, uh, this beginning, this uh, this caveat, some of the statements that Jesus makes is just about to make, are, are some of the most controversial, surprising, and shocking statements that uh, of this sermon. Some of the most shocking statements that Jesus ever uttered in his earthly ministry. And they are shocking, not just to the Jews that were listening, not just to the scribes and Pharisees that were uh, listening, trying to understand where is, this rabbi from Nazareth was teaching, but they are shocking, surprising, and and. Uh, perhaps even uh, controversial for us as reformed believers but firstly what is not shocking for us Jesus reaffirms and makes it quite clear in this caveat that he believes in the preeminence the perfection the the permanence the priority of the, the word of God I managed to, to get all these the, the, the preeminence the perfection, the permanence and the priority of God's word and this is important and this is tantum, uh, this is uh, primary for us to understand I was just saying to Peter uh, in, the, in the vestry I confessed to him that I felt that this was perhaps one of the most challenging sermons that I ever preached not so much challenging to those listening, but challenging to the one preaching. Because uh, as I wrestled with this passage, I came to the conclusion that this is perhaps one of the most significant passages in the whole of the of the New Testament. I came to the conclusion that this is perhaps the one passage that if you want to tell what someone believes in a whole host of, of doctrines or, or, or and and teachings of christianity you just have to listen to what he says in this passage or how he interprets this passage a dispensationalist will uh preach this this passage in a different way from a new covenant theology uh believer from a, a presbyterian believer there is there is enough here to to provoke controversies until the end of the day of the age between christian believers so what how do we unpack this how do we unpack such a uh, uh, pregnant as the old saints used to say such a pregnant passage well firstly by defining our terms the best way to understand what we're talking about and to unpack something is to define your terms it was often the case in uh, in seminary when we had discussions between students and uh, or students and lecturers that the number one question that was asked or the number one thing that was required when, whenever we were in a disagreement is define your terms. What do you mean by this? What do you mean by that? And I think there are a few terms here that need to be defined. What do we mean when we say the law? It's not immediately obvious that we all would agree when we, we, we read something like, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. What do we mean by law? What does Jesus mean by law? What, what do we mean when we say it? What does the Bible mean by law? So for the Jews, what, what is the law for a Jew living in the first century? The Jews used the term law to define different things. I counted Four. So for a Jew, when he said the law, he could be referring just to the Ten Commandments. For th- for him, the law was the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Commandments were the law. But then the law could have a much broader, uh, uh, a slightly broader under, uh, definition. You could say that the law is the whole of the Pentateuch, the first five books, the, law, the, the books of Moses. And usually that's, more often than not what is represented and i think that's what jesus means by the law in this particular sense in verse 17 it's the law or the prophets it's it's the pentateuch or the prophets it's the whole of the new the old testament that he's referring to sometimes jews would say law and by law they were referring to both the law and the prophets you know the 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 term that they use nowadays the the they have the torah uh, and, or they call it the Tanakh. It's the the the, the Tanakh, the Nevahim and uh, the Ketuvim in in Hebrew. Uh, it's the three: the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. But they could refer to the whole of the Tanakh as just the Law, and they do even today. When some, if you speak to a, a, a 21st century Jew, and he says the Torah most many of the times when he says the Torah is he's referring to the whole of their Old Testament but perhaps even more controversially uh, or perhaps even more telling is that Jews in Jesus's day and even today they will refer to the law as not only the writings but also the oral law the rabbinical tradition of the elders And this allows us to understand something. So often Jesus was accused of breaking the law. And the guilty guilty or innocent verdict depends on what you mean by law. And Jesus would admit to this. Yes, he is guilty of breaking the law. But not the law of God. Not the Torah, not the, the, the Old Testament. He never broke the, any law and any commandment in the Old Testament. He broke the laws or the law of the, of the Jews. When Jesus uh, sat down with the uh, tax collectors and prostitutes and had table fellowship with them, he was breaking the, the, the Pharisees' law. But that's not the, the law in the Old Testament Quite the contrary, I would assume that Jesus would even go as far as to say the the, the Old Testament teaches precisely the opposite. When Jesus healed on the Sabbath, he wasn't breaking the the, the Old Testament law. He was breaking the the scribal law. He was breaking the traditions of the scribes. And the scribes were the ones who distorted, disfigured and and transformed the Old Testament law. The scribes and the Pharisees who presented themselves as guardians of the law, as those who were the, 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 the gatekeepers, and accused Jesus of breaking the law, in a rather ironic twist, they were the ones that were actually disobeying the law that they claimed to protect. So Jesus begins by saying... I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish the Old Testament. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill the law of God, God's truth. The God's truth that is without error or failure. The God's truth that heavens and earth will pass away, but God's word will remain forever. That's what Jesus came to uphold, to fulfill. And what he says is that the the righteousness of the citizens of the kingdom of God, that's verse 20, and we'll get there, that the citizens of the kingdom of God, their righteousness is mandatory. Their obedience to the law is required. And we'll get there once we come to, to verse 20. So firstly... The preeminence of the law. Verse 17. I have not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but I I come to fulfill. But first of all, what we see in the way that Jesus speaks is is there is no contradiction or no, no fighting between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Whatever we understand between Old Testament and New Testament, we need to see them as working together, as as two pieces of the same puzzle, and that's not immediately the the, the way that some Christians think. Oh, I in my dispensational background, coming from Brethren churches, I heard some pretty wacky, uh, some really wacky uh, doctrines and teachings and and statements. But what Jesus says here is that. The Kingdom of God is not in opposition to the law and the prophets, whatever the Old Testament spoke of, it is still uh, valid, it is still there and it is still uh, effective. There is no conflict or contradiction between the old and the new dispensation. Jesus did not come to um, what he, overthrow or to abolish or to destroy. He came to fulfill to fulfill all that was symbolized and prophesied in the Old Testament. Think of it in this way. The law, the Old Testament, is promise, and Jesus, the New Testament, is fulfillment. The the law, the Old Testament, is a shadow, and the New Testament, Jesus, is the the reality that that shadow uh, pointed to. Jesus did not come to disallow or disavow the law, but to fulfill it. He did not come to refute the prophets, but to be the essence of what the prophets pointed to, to be the essence of all that they said. So Jesus fulfills the law, and we'll, I'll expand on this, in, in his birth, in his teachings, in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and will eventually even fulfill in his second coming. So, brothers and sisters, whatever we think about the Old Testament, whatever we think about the Word of God, let us not despise the Old Testament under any pretext. It is very fashionable in our day to to do away with two-thirds of the Bible as irrelevant to us. We just need the New Testament. It is very... uh, it is very normal in our days, especially in dispensational and New Covenant circles, New Covenant theology circles, to do this. And the answer that I give to any of, uh, of our dear brothers and sisters when I hear people say stuff like this is the simple answer. It, it, it's ridiculously simple, but it's actually the answer that we should give. We, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we should have the same view of the Old Testament that Jesus had. That's not a a controversial statement. However, Jesus saw the, the, the Old Testament, that's how we should see it. That fixes a lot of these problems, a lot of these discussions, a lot of these controversies. We should have the same view of the Old Testament as the author of the Old Testament had. That's Jesus. That's God. And the preeminence of Scripture is clearly affirmed. The preeminence of, of Scripture, in this case, is the Old Testament. By the time that Jesus says this, uh, there was only the Old Testament. Is clearly affirmed by Jesus. And he says, I, I'm not coming to destroy this mantle. I'm not coming to, to abolish or to cause you to disregard the Old Testament. I come to fulfill it. So you see, the Old Testament, whatever it is, however we, we, we unpack this, is, is not uh, something that can be dismissed. The, the Old Testament is what gives us Christianity. The Old Testament is what presents us the New Testament. If you think of the Old Testament as the, the embryo, Christianity is the full-fledged baby being born. The Old Testament is a, a seed or a bud, and the, and, and the New Testament Christianity is the flower opening up as my uh, one of uh, one of my lecturers in seminar used to say, uh, the Old Test- the New Testament, is just the appendix to the Old Testament. It just opens up all the things that are already there, and it, it interprets it for us. You know, in a book, in, when you go to the appendix, it kind of gives you the interpretation of some of the technical terms. And basically, that's what he's saying: the New Testament relies and is founded. On the old testament and the same faith that saved old testament believers is the faith that we have the same spirit that operates in us today was the spirit that was operating in them there is that is the teaching of the new testament but let you say that I'm being a, a little bit heavy-handed with our dispensational brothers. Let me let me give you provide you a little bit of balance and be heavy-handed or or uh, offer some criticism to our, our Presbyterian brothers in our in the Reformed circles that are closer to us. The pres- our Presbyterian brothers, when they come to a passage like this, they 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 simply don't acknowledge the significance of Christ fulfilling the, the, the law and the prophets. For them, it's just, yeah, he came and he, he obeyed the law and that's it. He came to obey the law. He's ratifying, basically. It's all the same. Nothing changes. So you see the, the, the two extremes of the of the situation. On on the one side you have dispensational and new covenant theology, and they break apart the the, uh, the Old Testament from the New Testament. There is uh, there is a separation between them. And then you come to the to closer to us, I would say, but still an extreme, uh, to the Presbyterians, and they and they flatten out everything the old testament is virtually indistinguishable from the new test the the new testament the old covenant uh, there is nothing new in the new covenant in in their estimation but when jesus says he came to fulfill and this is the second term that perhaps we have to define after defining law what does he mean to understand what he means by fulfilling we need to understand what he doesn't mean What does he mean by destroying or in in counterpoint to destroy? Uh, Jesus says he did not come to destroy, to abolish, but he came to fulfill. To understand one, we need to understand the other. Jesus is saying, I did not come to tear down or undo or set aside the, the Old Testament, but I came to fulfill. But then think about it. Didn't Jesus do away with some of the Old Testament laws? The sacrificial system is no longer valid. So whatever he means by destroying, it's not, doing a, it's not so much the doing away with some of those things because the sacrificial uh, system is no longer. All those dietary laws that were present in the Old Testament with the coming of christ with his fulfillment uh, of the law and the prophets those things are done away with so whatever he means by fulfill it works something uh, it brings some newness and that's why i think ultimately the the presbyterian view fails to understand what's going on here jesus fulfilling does change things we no longer live in old testament times We're no longer under the law, as Paul says. At least we're no longer under the law in the same way that we once were. Or that we were supposed to be. As Christian believers, we're not under the law in the same way that uh, unbelievers are. When Jesus says he came to fulfill, it's exactly the same word that is spoken by Matthew in all of those prophecies leading up to chapter 5. about the place where Jesus was to be born so that it would be fulfilled or the types uh, that were fulfilled by Christ what Christ is saying to fulfill is I come to shed light on all that the Old Testament is the Old Testament is pointing to me and I come to fulfill all of that so that the shadow is gone and the, the, the reality comes in Jesus is saying That all of those things in the Old Testament that were there pointing to Him, they are fulfilled. So yes, there are things in the Old Testament that are done away with. Traditionally, traditionally, Reformed believers have used the the terminology of the three types, the three uh, categories of the law. You have the civil law that was the laws for the for the nation of Israel. And then you have the ceremonial law were, that, that was the sacrificial system. And then you have the moral law. And traditionally what we believe, and I do believe this, is that those two, the civil and the ceremonial, have been done away with, with the coming of Christ. The moral law is still abiding in a different way as well uh, to us believers. But it's still abiding. Uh, our brother Jeremy Walker, from uh, the pastor from Maidenbauer, he calls it uh, planned obsolescence. Some of you might have heard this term, plan obsolescence, a few years ago. There was this big controversy with uh, uh, an American uh, smartphone uh, manufacturer. They found out that somewhere in the the software of the phone, uh, this big, uh, huge uh, company was installing software Uh, that made it so that after three, four, five years, the phone would start to glitch. The phone was perfectly fine, but all of a sudden, every single phone after four or five years starts to have battery problems, overheating problems, whatever it was, I don't remember. And this was a planned obsolescence. What they were trying to do is, we need to get these phones to uh, to be rubbish so that people buy new phones. There, there was a nefarious reason, a nefarious planned obsolescence, but it was, it was planned. This needs to be phased out. This is meant to be phased out so that the new comes in. And in the same way, the Old Testament law had planned obsolescence built into it. There were some things that were meant to be there to point us towards the, the, the fulfillment, and once the fulfillment comes, this is no longer needed. Is it invalid? are we doing away with no the principles are there the, there is teaching there there are the, the 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 threefold use of the law is still valid and applicable but christ fulfilled it all and it is it is not that it's lost its validity or lacks authority it's not that it's no longer inspired or, or that it is now irrelevant But Christ fulfilled the law. So now we need to look at those things through the lens of what Christ has done. That is true of the old, all of the Old Testament. Ceremonial, civil, and even moral. We look at these things now no longer through the the lens of what they meant in the Old Testament. They were a covenant of works. Do these things and you will live. Break these things. Break these commandments and you will die. But now as Christian believers... We interact with the Old Testament law through the lens of him who fulfilled it on our behalf. And, that's, and that doesn't make it less, it makes it much greater. Let's talk about the Sabbath for a, for a brief moment. Uh, Sabbath is perhaps the most controversial of all the, the, the Ten Commandments. We are Sabbatarians. We believe that the Lord's Day has become the, uh, the Christian Sabbath. Sabbath. But in light of this, the Christian Sabbath doesn't lose, in light of Christ's fulfillment, Christian Sabbath doesn't lose its, uh, its potency and its uh, beauty. The, the Christian Sabbath is much greater than what it was in the Old Testament. That's why I'm so upset whenever I hear Christian believers, brothers and sisters, uh, treat the Christian Sabbath as if it is the, the Old Testament Sabbath as a place to keep all these, these rules and these, these legislations. It's not that. We are called to keep the Christian Sabbath. But we keep it in light of what Christ has done and the freedom that we now have in him. That doesn't mean that you're allowed. <laughs> that doesn't mean that you, you can go and play football. Or, but it means that we are no longer under the, 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 the stricture uh, and the, the strictness, that is, of the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled it. Let me put it to you before I move on to, to the last three verses in, in very quickly, how the confession puts it. I don't quote the confession that often, but I do use the confession as my framework. This is how the confession of 1689 puts it. Listen to the, how they understood it. Although true believers, that's you and me, brothers and sisters, although true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works, to be thereby justified or condemned. So what what was the understanding of our forefathers in the faith? That we're no longer under the law to be justified as a covenant of works. We're no longer under the law to be justified or to be condemned. Yet, there is a but, but it is of great use to them as well as to others in that as a rule of life, it informs us of the will of God and, and of our duty. It directs and binds us to walk accordingly. What is their understanding? Is that the law, the Old Testament, we're no longer under it in the sense that we are not bound to it uh, as a covenant of, of works. But God's mind hasn't changed. What was true, and I'll use the word now, uh, true and beautiful of, of the, uh, the Old Testament is still true and beautiful and it's still approved in, in the eyes of God. But it, our interaction with it is completely different from, our, uh, from the, the Old Testament Israel. So you see, this, this verse 17 is a challenge not only to dispensationalists and uh, New Covenant theology believers, but it's also a challenge to us as Reformed believers. Because it is inadequate. Whatever view you take, so dispensationalists will say, oh, if the, if the, New, Testament, um, if the New Testament doesn't splic- explicitly um, say to do it, you don't have to do it. And that's how you end up with not holding to the Sabbath and all kinds of things. It's usually the Sabbath. So new dispensationalists will say, if the New Testament doesn't say to do it, we don't need to do it. But then on the other side, and uh, uh, this probably hits closer to home to us, is the, the side that, oh, if the New Testament doesn't say that we should not do it, then uh, we don't need to do it. That we, therefore, we, uh, we, we need to do it. That, that, that misses the point completely of what is the understanding of of Christ. That's not what Christ said here. Christ said he came to fulfill the law and the prophets so that every Old Testament text must be viewed in the light of Jesus' person and ministry. We have to understand that we now live in the new covenant. Some of the things of the old covenant are done away with. The new covenant is new. And that being said, I'm sure there are a lot of questions that I would love to listen and, 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 do, and, uh, and struggle through. But our understanding is that, that Christ fulfilled everything in obedience, but as well in his life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection And that, therefore, the Old Testament is not destroyed. It is upholded and introduces us to the new covenant in the New Testament. But that's just point number one of four points. And now I I need to rush forward. Jesus upholds the preeminence of the Old Testament, but he also upholds the infallibility of the law and the prophets. And here I'll be quick. He says... For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one yacht or one tittle will by no means pass from the the law till all is fulfilled. Again, in light of this understanding of fulfilled, it now starts making sense what Jesus is saying here. All that is promised in the Old Testament, and some of the things by the time that Jesus says this have already been uh, uh, fulfilled. But other things will only be fulfilled in his death, burial, and resurrection. And other things, yet, yeah, will only be fulfilled in the future for us, in his second coming. But all will be fulfilled. One yod, it's the smallest letter of the Greek, the yod. One tittle, it's, the, it's, it's not even the smallest le- it's just a stroke that you put at the end of a of a letter that allows you to distinguish accents. Not the smallest part, not the slightest uh, a thing of God's worth will fail or be untrue, or will, will 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 be untrue, or fail its purpose. That is, but also its permanence. This is the perfection. Everything is perfect, even the smallest yod and tittle. But its permanence until heaven and earth pass away twice jesus says says this until heaven and earth pass uh, pass away everything will be fulfilled and then verse 19 whoever therefore breaks one of these least uh, one of least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever does and teaches them uh, will uh, shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven and here is again it's the controversy and not so much the controversy but it's he's placing the priority of God's word first and foremost we are to obey those in the kingdom of heaven are not only to obey but they are to teach and they are not only to teach but they are to teach rightly their reward in heaven And I know the subject of rewards in heaven is 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 a a tricky one, but their reward in heaven is uh, is attached to how they obey and teach, and how they are faithful to Holy Scripture. Jesus is not here speaking of losing salvation, but he's speaking about the the reward. If you, if you teach correctly and if you obey correctly, your reward will you'll be great in the kingdom of heaven. If you, if you are disobedient, if you break and teach wrongly here, um, you will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. And the point is further emphasized. Look at verse 20. That's the, my last point. I'm really moving forward quickly here. There's so much that could be said in these these, uh, verses. But the last point is emphasized. Look at how Jesus put it. For I say to you, so this is connected to everything that he just said. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. He tells us that the purpose of the Old Testament, the purpose of scripture, that is, is to point us to lead us into God's righteousness. We just read, uh, coincidentally, we don't believe in coincidence, but we just read the, that psalm, Psalm 71, that speaks of the righteousness of God. It's, <laughs> if, if you're a Pharisee, this is perhaps one of the, uh, one of the most controversial statements, because they were very uh, self-righteous in, uh, in their own uh, understanding. But it's not controversial for someone who reads their Old Testament, is it? Because time and time again, you read David, you read the psalmist, you read, you read through, the, through the, the prophets. The point is never the righteousness of the individual. The point is always the righteousness of God. And yes, it was in shadow, and, you, and we can sympathize with Old Testament believers that they failed to understand us. We can sympathize with Old Testament believers that they expected a, a triumphant military Messiah. And actually, what they got was something much better. They got a, a, a spiritual Messiah that, that conquered not through the sword but through the cross, and and the... The the, the subduing the nations was not so much uh, conquering them with a rod of iron was conquering them with the power of his love you see all that fulfillment happening but this is probably one of the, the most shocking things for the disciples to hear unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees the Pharisees were known for their righteousness according to the law they even went as far as adding more laws on top of the law. They had 600 and something. I, I, uh, I, I could have checked, but uh, it was, I have a, a note here, uh, 248 positive commandments and 365 negative prohibitions. Not only the, the Pharisees were, were, were very obedient, they, they even went above and beyond. This statement probably stunned everyone that heard it. So, you mean that not even the righteousness of the Pharisees is enough for us to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, Yes, not even the righteousness. You need to surpass it. Because the Pharisees were seen as the epitome, the the pinnacle of righteousness in their day, they would go at lengths. But does Jesus mean that we need to do more than they did? Certainly not. What Jesus says about surpassing the righteousness surpassing is not Jesus advocating for a, a salvation by works theology. That's not what Jesus teaches elsewhere and that's not what the New Testament teaches. It's not about the quantity. That's how we tend to think. It's about the quality and the heart of that righteousness. It's the sort of righteousness that is indeed a requisite to enter the kingdom of heaven. Ultimately, it is the righteousness of Christ, his obedience, his fulfilling of the law, being robed in us or uh, being robed onto us. But it, al- it is also about our obedience. Let us not excuse ourselves. Oh, because Christ fulfilled everything. That's how often how our carnal minds think. Oh, Christ fulfilled everything. I have his righteousness. I can go and live life as I want to. And I do not need to be concerned. I can do whatever I want. Now, Jesus makes it clear that there is a, a, a righteousness that, that is performed by us. That there is an obedience element. And not breaking uh, the least of these commandments uh, element he is saying that Jesus is the, that his disciples the citizens of the kingdom of heaven must be characterized, characterized by a righteousness that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees what was the, the, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees In, very quickly and I'll give you a few uh, points uh, these are not my own this is from the, the late Dr. Lloyd Jones but he is brilliant in his exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. He says that the basic charge that Jesus is leveling against the Pharisees is that their righteousness was purely external and formal instead of the heart. He says that the, the second charge, is which our Lord brought against the scribes and Pharisees, was that they were obviously more concerned with the ceremony and less with the moral. The principle behind it. And thirdly, the the next charge which our Lord brings against the Pharisees is that they were clearly primarily concerned about themselves and their own righteousness with the result that they were almost invariably self-satisfied, self-centered. This this is my addition. In other words, the ultimate object, the ultimate uh, uh, goal of the Pharisee, of Jesus' day, was not really to glorify God, was not really to love God by being obedient to his commands, was to put on this veneer of religiosity, of self-righteousness, and parade himself so that everyone could see, look at how holy I am. That's what, that was the problem. And that's why Jesus says, unless your righteousness suppresses that, and basically Jesus is saying, that righteousness is not really that high. It's not really righteousness at all. It's not the righteousness that God wants. Unless your, your righteousness surpasses them, which is to say is, is not flowing just from the externals, but flows from the heart of obedience, unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not saying that we need to make ourselves righteous in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. There is no righteous, no, not one. Every mouth is stopped in the presence of the Holy God. We are all guilty before God, the righteous one. But he's also not saying that you pray a prayer once in your life and then you can go live your life like someone in the world and, and don't worry because you prayed that prayer and you were very sincere at the time. You can, you, you're certainly going to get inside of heaven. Jesus is not saying that. He did not, never teach something of that sort. Our Lord Jesus is teaching us that the proof of our having truly received the grace of God in Jesus Christ is that we are living a righteous life. Faith and works go together. In the James kind of term uh, situation. Show me your faith and I'll show you my faith through my works. Faith and works. uh, Faith begets works. Faith Gives birth to works. Faith shows itself by works. And now lest, lest you think that this is my Bible doctrine, that, that I'm, that I'm uh, uh, misquoting James even, perhaps. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. Be not deceived. And he's not speaking to the world, he's speaking to the church in Corinth, to believers, be not deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, extortioners, none of them shall inherit the kingdom of God. It is no use for us to say, oh I believe in Christ, I've I've given my life to him, but, uh, but, but I'm a cardinal Christian. One of the greatest lies ever brought into the the church. The idea that you can be a Christian and be carnal in your living. No, when you receive the grace of God the grace of God releases you from the shackles of the law. True. Because Christ fulfilled the law and the prophets. You're no longer under the law to 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 be justified or to be condemned but it also releases you from the shackles of living licentiously of being a slave to sin of allowing yourself to to run loose as if you were of this world the grace of God works in those both elements and the big difference from us to the Pharisees, if we are different from the Pharisees, and I hope we are, is that we do these things, not to parade ourselves, not to be self-centered, but we do these things because we want to please the God who has saved us. Not for the world to see and, 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 uh, and, uh, and puff us up, but because we love Christ. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So it is not an obedience out of a burden, out of, a, a, of a, a pressure over our shoulders. It is an obedience that flows out of love, out of a heart that has been purified, that has been loved by God and therefore loves God back, that puts God first. It is not grievous to us to obey God. If you're a citizen of the kingdom, holding... Uh, uh, Holding to the fourth commandment is not something that, that bothers you. <sighs> I really wish I could do this on a Sunday. Or I really wish that I could do this or that. It's like, no, I get to do this on a Sunday. I get to take a day off from the cares and the troubles of this world. I get to take a day off from the, the, the regular business, busyness and buis, uh, the business and busyness of the, of the week for the Lord because he asked me to do it because he wants me to do it i get to be holy to be set apart for god it's not i need to be holy it's not i get to be holy and then you will understand the righteousness that far exceeds the righteousness of the pharisees that's how we far exceed their righteousness it's not so much in the quantity it's in the quality it's what it means. So the question for us all is do we know God and do we love God? Because if we do, this makes perfect sense. Can you say honestly that the biggest thing in your life, the thing you most desire, and here we all beat our chests and we probably say not completely, not 100% of the time. But can you say honestly that, w- that the, the driving force for your life is to, le- to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? Does He come first in your life? There was once a Pharisee, a real Pharisee, A Pharisee like the Pharisee that our Lord Jesus speaks here. A Pharisee that was so good, so perfect, so obedient. He wrote about himself that he was the greatest of Pharisees. According to the law, he was blameless. There was nothing that anyone could point a finger at him. He was a Jew of the Jews an Israelite of the Israelites. According to all of this obedience, everything he had, nothing he was missing. But then Jesus steps in. And he looks at the law through the the lenses of the fulfilled, uh, of the fulfillment in Christ Jesus, the Messiah, his Messiah, the Messiah that he longed for. And he now looks back at all of that obedience and he says, you know what? It was all dung. It was all rubbish. It was all worthless. Why? Because I had it all wrong all all this time. It's about Him. It's not about me. It's about Him and the glory of Him and His honour. What things were gained to me. Those things that I thought were so good in my life. Those things that I thought were on, on, my, on, 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 the, on the treasury, of my, on my spiritual bank account. That were working on my behalf, accruing me treasures in heaven. Those things were actually the things that were pulling me down. That righteousness that I had according to the law was actually what was pulling me down. So you see, it's not too hard to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees in this case. just need to see things as they really are. Paul says, I am the living illustration of a Pharisee who had all the credentials. But now I count on the righteousness of Christ. Most of you are Christians here this this evening. You love the Lord Jesus Christ. And my pleading to you is love him more. Not obey, but love him more. And then obedience will be the easiest thing. That's my, my, my contention for myself. Why I find it so hard to obey? Because I, I lose track of why it is that we obey. I miss the heart of the matter. That is love for God because then obedience is the easiest thing in the world. For those of you who are not Christians. And you're still trying to earn your way. Ah, if I die. or I'm not a Christian. But, but I'm a, a really good person at heart. Someone said to, uh, to, uh, to us recently on the, on the doorstep. Oh, well, I, I do all the things that my mom would do. And my mom was a really good person. And I know that when I—I uh, I, I believe that when I die, God will look at those things. Yeah. Not worth it. Not good enough. What you need to do is to stop trusting in yourself. That's uh, this self-centered. I'm a real, really good person, and I know that God will look at that goodness and save me. And trust the One who is truly God, our Lord.